Okay. Welcome. Let's get started here with our study on the book of Hebrews. We are on chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Not sure where, I don't know where the rest of the people are, but we'll start with who we got. Hebrews 10, we were um, on verse 2. Before we begin, let's ask God's uh, blessing on our Sunday morning. Father, we thank You that we can gather as Your little flock because of what You've done for us. We thank You for Your kindness and mercy that You've shown us. Lord, we lift up Barb Jelly, who was in the hospital with some really bad symptoms that they're not sure where they came from. We pray that You'd bring healing to her. And Father, we ask for wisdom from Your Word and help us to live it out obediently in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 2. Otherwise, it's not, well, i got to read verse 1 to get a complete sentence here. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. So the simple logic is, <coughs> excuse me, that if these Old Testament sacrifices were actually efficacious, then why would they be done over and over and over again? So, it's pretty simple logic. And a quote here, William Lane, 261. Under the old, excuse me, under the old covenant, worshippers never experienced a definitive cleansing. The participle cleansed is qualified by a pause once for all to distinguish a cleansing with finality from an experience of purgation that will have to be repeated. Um, this expression here, the consciousness of sins, connotes the Hebrew sense of a burdened, smitten heart which became most pronounced on the Day of Atonement when it was necessary to confront the holiness of God. And that's a very important concept, that the, all these sacrifices and cleansings and services that were going on under the Old Covenant were a reminder to the people of the holiness of God and that as sinners and defiled ones, they were always needing something uh, in order to be anywhere near God's presence, even to be His people and to be in the camp and to be part of Israel, they had to have a consciousness of the holiness of God and their own sinfulness. Now, the most pointed expression of this whole idea of one's sinfulness and the holiness of God was that which happened on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a unique uh, of the of the feasts, so to speak, because the Day of Atonement was the only day that Israel fasted, all right, in, as far as what was prescribed by law. 
And it doesn't even necessarily say fast there, but it says, I think it says that on that day, you must afflict your souls. What's that? Afflict your soul. And so, let's see if we can find that. Leviticus 23.26. So, I think an important idea was that there was a consciousness of being a sinner needing atonement. Yeah, sort of an anti-feast. Every other one was a feast um, where they had some time of rejoicing. Okay, you had the feast of tabernacles. They gathered. You had the feast of the Passover. You had the first fruits. They had feasts. They were rejoicing in various things that God did and reminding them of God's great acts of salvation and their uniqueness as a people of God. Where the Day of Atonement was a different day. It was a day not to feast, but to be afflicted. So, let me see here. I was looking for 26. 27. Okay. Uh, he, uh, Leviticus 23. That's the chapter that prescribes the feasts. Okay. 20, Leviticus 23.27. On the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls. Or some translations say afflict your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Neither shall you do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from the people. Now the reasoning is that if you refuse to humble yourself, you were claiming that you did not need atonement. And elsewhere in Numbers, that's called um, sin of defiance as, that would not be atoned for. So basically, you'd be like apostasy. You're lost if you don't admit you need atonement. So that was, now the, the Jews interpreted that humble yourself as a fasting. So that was the one day a year that they had a prescribed nationwide fast was on that particular day. And they afflicted their souls and they went realizing that we're sinners and God is a holy God. So that's the day of atonement. Um, here's, here's some more from William Lane. The Day of Atonement was design, designated as a day for fasting and the confession of sins. So they fasted and they confessed their sins. The elaborate ritual was intended to accentuate a consciousness of sins. The solemn entrance of the high priest into the most holy place dra- dramatized the fact that sin separates the congregation from God. From this perspective, the sacrifices really provided a reminder of sins, where that's a phrase from Hebrews, which brought to the consciousness of the worshipers the reality of their sins as an obstacle to fellowship with God. Now, is there any correspondence to this in the New Testament? Keith. You mean 2 Peter uh, 1? Nine? Okay. Not even... And in your knowledge, you know, self-control, I've these things. Self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours 
and are increasing, they render me to be neither useless nor fruitful in true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Okay, so there, if you forgot your purification, so there should always be, I believe, a reminder of what God did for us in Christ. Okay. So um, Tuesday night up there at the that little meeting we had, I was pointing out that the Bible portrays us as former enemies of God who'd been reconciled. So if you if you remove the preaching of the law, then people who aren't Christian tend to not have a consciousness of sins. Because, because you, Even the people that are Christian, yeah. I, forget, I forget I, from where I came from. Exactly. So if that part is removed from biblical preaching, and we're only told the positive things, the things that make us feel good or make us feel happy or feel important or whatever it is we're trying to do, that that removal of key things the idea of the wrath of God, the idea of enemies being reconciled and so on, will change ultimately the gospel itself. So it becomes something less than what God intended to be and it won't have the effect He wanted it to have. It's almost like if you look at it in the context of Hebrews when you feast, if you had all the other feasts and you moved the day of atonement, the other feasts don't mean anything. That's a good point. If, if they just, in fact, that was the one. That, that's interesting. That if you refuse to participate, you're not, you're not one of us. Is what what they said. You're not, you're not truly part of the people. You you're cut off from the people if you don't do this. So they had a consciousness of sins, but what Christ brought was a once for all sacrifice to remove sins and to make us holy. All right, and to that regard, Pat, could you read Hebrews 9, 13, and 14? So he cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So serving the living God in the Old Testament understanding would be that you're consecrated. It would be like a priestly service. So we are made able to draw near to God because of what he did. There's some more passages uh, about how how it's going to be because of Christ. Psalm 103.12, no. And Bert... Isaiah 43:25 and Denny Isaiah 44:22 and Diane Micah 7:19 Okay, uh Psalm 103:12 
As far as the east from the west, He's removed our transgressions. Isaiah 43.25 I, even I, am the one who wipes wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. So God says, I wipe out your transgressions for my sake. What does He mean by that? Mm-hmm. That he might have a holy, righteous people, yes. Now, when he says for God, I've forgotten your sins. And we're going to go to this judgment. He's going to look at our life. We have these consequences of our sins that are obvious if you look at anybody's life. How does that work? How does God forget sins? I mean, because he's going to look at it and say, well, I think you did something bad or your brother's gone because you killed him. All of a sudden, your life, you're reviewing it, and he's gone. Obviously, something happened. It's, it's a weird concept. All right, let's discuss. What does it mean that God has forgotten our sins? Is from, our, from, our, from my perspective, it is that he just will never mention them again, or as if they're forgotten. Okay, so you would take forgotten, not mean literally God doesn't remember we ever sinned, in the sense that he can't recall it, but that he doesn't hold it in account. Right. All right? Does anybody else want to weigh in on this one? I think that we use the term that way when we tell people to forgive and forget. Or, or if, let's just say you get this advice from somebody. You're a bitter person and you're talking about it. And it's good advice. Forgive and forget. Now, what do we mean by that? To let it go. We don't mean that you're going to somehow... Have one of these bulk erasers like they got for tapes, you know. <laughs> because if you literally had the inability to remember, there's certain parts, certain things we, we need to remember things because we learned even from what was bad. Sometimes you accidentally forget and forget, and the incident happens when I don't consider it important, I do forget it. And until someone brings it up again, I have really truly forgotten. Yeah, you can put it somewhere where it's not important. And maybe it doesn't come to mind unless something jogs it. I, I used to tell people trying to forget something is the best memory device you could ever come up with. <laughs> yes. That's what it says. Hmm. Okay, uh, Sam. You must forget if you're going to be allowed into heaven and you're saved. You're saved. But I think that also uh, a role, we, we play a role in that too. When he forgets our sins, we have to repent and continue to repent from that day forward when, when we are saved. So, uh, well, there's certainly a complex issue because. It is true, though, it says First Corinthians 3, that there are some people that were, you know, building with gold, precious stones, and silver, and others are building with wood, hay, and stubble, and the day, and the fire comes, and the person is saved. Is wood, hay, and stubble sin? Well, I think that probably, I'll tell you how I understand it, then you can either agree or disagree, alright? Here's how I understand it. In regards to entering into God's presence in eternity, which is what the Day of Atonement is about. God's holy. People are sinful. 
a holy God can't tolerate sinful people in His presence. All right? So there has to be a blood atonement to make it possible to come into God's presence as a holy people. So in regard to our unholiness, and the blood is, is a um, expiatory and propitiatory. Right? It, it, it removes the sins and it averts God's wrath. So in that regard, I think as you take things kind of either or. Either that's true for somebody or it's not true. Either you're Christian or you're not. You're saved or you're lost. Now that's one big category. Now in regards to eternal rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, it says we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and receive reward for the deeds done in the body. And then the passage I was mentioning from 1 Corinthians 3 wouldn't it be true that our deeds are indeed significant in regard to degrees of reward? But that's only on the positive side. You did some good, you did lots of good. It doesn't say you did rotten. Well, whatever we did rotten must be washed away by the blood of Jesus, I guess. In that case, the judgment is only how many deeds that... It's only the positive side. Right, but but I think there's also degrees of punishment for the wicked. All right, so I think that's what, that's what I'm saying. Whether your sins are forgiven or not, whether you're in or heaven or not, is an either or. All right, there's no shades of gray in there. Yeah, there's no there's no gray area. However, th- that's not the whole of what the Bible tells about judgment and reward. That it says these ones shall receive greater damnation. Says in, the, in, the, in what Jesus said, and it says these will will not lose their reward, and whatever you did, the you know unto the least of these my brethren, you did unto me, uh, the, and then the idea of First Corinthians three. So I think that if you if you keep those as separate categories, then this forgetting makes sense that they're they're forgotten totally. It makes it. Okay, now I'm a Christian, and I believe that God's blood has covered me. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for me and for the rest of the world, I still sin. And there's a concept that's easy for me to, to uh, have, but God just kind of has this big bag of sins that He forgot. And He's carrying this little bag now, or maybe it's a big bag, uh, since, <laughs> I, since, I, since I've been saved. And that still invokes a kind of a fear. That isn't consistent, I don't think, with the gospel. I think I have a defect there in that if it's really truly forgotten and continues to be forgotten and that his blood is continuing to be effective in even my sins, then I may not do my lack of faith and my inability to believe the gospel may result in very little actions that we read in First Peter of godliness and, and, and honesty and all kinds of things. But so I have lots of wood hay and stubble of just affecting my life on stupid things, which isn't necessarily a sin. But there will be some reward just because there's a little bit of reward. Oh. I'm going to preach actually this morning on um, Philippians 2 where it says um, just as you've obeyed in my presence and in my absence, um, work out, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God 
who is working in you to will him to do his good pleasure. That's the sermon topic this morning. And I think it's, it's pointing out that even forgiven, redeemed people need to be reminded that they are, that we are in relationship with a holy God who came into our life not just to remove sins, but on the positive side to work and to will his good pleasure. And that we're commanded uh, and exhorted to obey him, according to Paul. And so that passage is about obedience. Yes? Isn't that... I'm trying to listen to this conversation. But I'm also thinking of what you're talking about. It's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's almost a... If you look at it in what I can relate to as far as old spirituals, if you call them, the old southern gospel, it's almost a sweet agony working that out. <laughs> and it's almost a, it's almost a, it's a longing and understanding that you are continually sinning, but it's such a grateful understanding that there's not this weekly sacrifice anymore. It's a continual blood, almost atonement. And it's, it's not the, you know, when you come from the Catholic background, it's not the weekly sacrifice thing of that nature. It's just that it can be the moment by moment, you know, that, man, I failed, but here's the blood again. Thank you. And I failed, here's the blood again. So that whole working out, my, my concern isn't necessarily what God is going to have in his little bag of sin. My concern is, am I going to know and is he going to know me? Because... I don't want to pay attention to a lot of those sins. I want to make sure that I, me personally, is continually seeking out that forgiveness. Well, I think we need to be conscious, conscious of both things. The, the forgiveness, the cleansing, the blood atonement, which we, have, we should sing about, which we do, and we should preach. And, uh, and uh, I think that that's what's lacking from a lot of modern evangelicalism. They don't, most people go to evangelical churches haven't even heard of a blood atonement much less uh, the implications of it. But on the other hand, the, the exhortation part is, 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 is true, that we should live out the implications of that in a positive way. you got Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. And you got Romans 8, that we have the Holy Spirit who leads us. And God who's at working all things together to conform us to the image of Christ. And so if we continually avail ourselves of the whole counsel of God, we can't help but come up with a balanced, godly approach that acknowledges all of these things. Exactly. If you, if you take certain things out, we were talking about that at that conference up in Rock Creek. Um, we use the illustration of spiritual scurvy. If you know, if you go on a ship and you got all the food you need, which they didn't know about vitamins, okay, back in those days, and they'd go out on a ship and they'd load it up. They could figure out, you know, how much food you're going to need for how many sailors for how many months you're going to be out at sea. But the people were getting sick and dying because they didn't have any vitamin C. They didn't know what that was. Somebody finally figured it out several hundred years ago, actually, that if they had fruit, if they had grapefruits and stuff, they'd get over their scurvy. Limeys. Well, that's why they call them Yeah. So they figured out you had to have a life. Well, what I said in the conference, and I got this illustration from somebody else, but if you, if you take Christianity 
Okay, you can say, okay, we got the Bible, we believe this, but we're gonna, what we're going to preach is just ideas sort of derived from the Bible and a few concepts you might find there, but we're not going to preach the whole counsel of God. You're going to give the people spiritual scurvy because there's essentials that we don't think we need. It feels like we're eating. It feels like we're getting taught. But the, those things that are left out will harm us in the long run. And so that's why uh, it's absolutely necessary to preach the whole counsel of God, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20. Well, let's go back. These people, have their fingers are they're bruised from sitting in that Bible so long here. <laughs> yeah, the thief on the cross sort of thing. Yeah, yeah he didn't have a lot of time. He, the thief on the cross that had, didn't have much time to go do a lot of good works, did he? Well, that, that's what I meant. There's degrees of punishment and degrees of reward. But the great white throne judgment has to do with your name in the book. Let's get these verses out here. Uh, Isaiah 44:22. All right, <laughs> that finger, his fingers wore out. Isaiah 44:22, Denny. All right, so God wipes out transgressions. He just wipes them out. Micah 7 and verse 19. Okay, go ahead. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you who cast all their sins into the depths of the sea, you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to your forefathers from the days of old. Wow. So God's going to wipe out the sin of Israel for the sake of the promises he made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. It says that in Romans 11. But interesting analogy, the, the, the sins are going to go into the depths of the sea. Now, the Jews weren't, they weren't, they liked the sea. They weren't, weren't sailors. In their mind, the sea is where you went and never came back again. So your sins are a good, it's good to have them in the sea. <laughs> they're gone and they're not going to come back. Yeah. 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 I do your sailing now. <laughs> but there's a river. You can maybe get a little river boat. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, you had something. That, I think Scott was wanting to say something. I, I, sorry to... Oh, you're okay? Yeah, I'm actually, that's what's going to be the sermon topic because Philippians is about that. And Keith, as you were coming in, Keith read a verse in Second Peter about that. That If these things are yours and increasing, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of God. And there are means that God has given us to, by faith, uh, avail ourselves of that He has throughout the centuries that true Christians have availed themselves of these things and God uses them. And I'm going to preach about that this morning. Yes. That's totally, that, that's, as you know, it's one of my favorite passages. I quote it constantly, the one in Jeremiah. And when I explain when we're preaching the gospel, either here in church or out on the street, a lot of times, that's how I explain repentance. Because it says, repent and believe the gospel. And, and, and ultimately, repentance is turning from trusting self, works, man, religion, anything, 
and, tr- and putting one's trust fully in God alone on his terms. That's repentance, and that's what Jeremiah says, and you're blessed if you repent. Even the struggle I have, it's hard to believe in believing in this blood atonement. I understand it in my head, the concept, but in as much as I think and perceive God carrying my little bag of sins, I have a tendency to try to want to make a nice little bag of good deeds on the other side to kind of outweigh it. And until I really believe that that bag is empty, I don't, there's not a freedom and the gratitude to just go on because it had this predisposition to make a good little bag too. Well, I was just listening to a sermon. One, uh, Rock, I don't know if you met Rocco. They sit back over here, Rocco and Nancy. He handed me a cassette of Alistair Big, and he said, I want you to listen to this. So well, I don't have a cassette, so I digitized it. I mean, I don't have a cassette in my truck, and I only listen to stuff on the truck because I'm working when I'm here. So I was, I was driving around yesterday listening to Alistair Big, and it was about, he was basically rebuking these people for this Evangelicals and Catholics Together document. But in his process, he was preaching the gospel and explaining the doctrines of justification. And he said that our doctrine of justification, that justification is by faith, and that works follow justification as the fruit of justification. They don't increase justification. And and then he quoted several places out of the Council of Trent that anathematizes the doctrine of justification that we believe. And he says, how can you get together and sign a document with people that are telling you that you're going to go to hell if you keep the doctrine you already have? This is what Alistair Big was saying. That was good. That was a good sermon. He's good. Yeah, he was very good. I love hearing the truth. It's like, wow. Well, and anyhow, he mentioned something about their own song service, and he basically rebuked whoever led music that day. Because he says, uh, he says, well, we had a song that was sung here today. It was a very beautiful song, but I got to take issue with one line in there. This is what made me think what you were just saying, Keith. He says the line says, I, I don't know what he saw in me, and and Alistair said, well, I'll tell you right now, nothing. <laughs> he, saw, he saw nothing in you, so now get your doctrine right. <laughs> so I don't know who led songs. They're probably going to <laughs> nix that one. All right, let's get back to Hebrews 10, verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins year by year. That's, that's what we were just talking about. They had a continual reminder that they were sinners. Every year, the Day of Atonement, there was this very explicit and visual and, uh, how would you say, just a strong reminder that if God doesn't accept these sacrifices, we can't be His people. Okay, uh, Tyler, Exodus 30 and verse 10. Leif, oh, we already read those ones, so I'll have you go to Numbers 29.7. We, we already did Leviticus 23. So. Exodus 30 and verse 10, and then Numbers 29.7 are cross-references. Once a, once a year, Aaron had to make atonement. Okay, and then Numbers 29.7. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month, you have... All right, that's that humbling yourself or afflicting your souls, as they called it. Let's go to verse 4 then, Hebrews 10 and verse 4. For it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hmm. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, let's read some cross-reference and maybe discuss that. Well, let's see what it says. You can look one up. Uh, Psalm 51.16, uh, Carla. And then Keith, Isaiah 1.11-15, Norm. Hosea 6.6, 6, and Clydoris. Micah 6.6-8, 6 and Denise, John 1.29. We get desensitized to it. Yeah, uh, very much so. And that's why uh, I think we need the whole counsel of God because we don't preach the law and the gospel. And and the New Testament continually has reminders of what bad looks like. Look at these vice lists that Paul has. Romans 1, the the Gentiles, and it gives a list of all the bad things they do. 1 Corinthians 6, be not deceived, drunkards, homosexuals, adulterers should not inherit the kingdom. There's vice lists in a lot of the New Testament epistles because if that's not preached, people will tend to think that whatever the culture accepts, God does. And so, yes, it's very much a danger that we get desensitized and don't even have a consciousness of sin because of the of, 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 it says their conscience is seared with a hot iron. Timothy, so that we we get to think that. Things are okay. They really aren't. So that's very important. Yes. So you, you, your conscience is actually trained, and if you train it with what's good and bad relative to the biblical standards, it'll work for you. Because telling you what's good or bad, your feeding of conscience will be valid. If you train it improperly, so that certain things that God declares bad, you train your conscience that that's good, and you. The inverse of that, we're going to tolerance is the, you can say, for instance, tolerance is the epitome of, of good, and you tolerate the intolerable. And that if you tolerate, then your conscience says you're good. You're training your conscience to work against you. Right, exactly. The conscience isn't the Holy Spirit. The conscience is something that you train. Yeah, exactly. And it says that earlier in Hebrews. It, it says in Hebrews 5 that, I think it's through the Scriptures that we have our, um, what do we have trained to discern good and evil? I, I'm going to have to look it up. The conscience is in the Holy Spirit. You know, that, that's interesting because there's always a thought that the Holy Spirit uh, drives the conscience. Senses. Here's what it says here. For the, well, it, Paul said, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit informs our conscience. Okay. Yeah, through the Word. But well, that's what I'm going to read. Hebrews 5, um, 13, no, I'll start with verse 12. This is where discernment comes from. You want to know why so much of the church is not discerning? Because they're not being given what they need to be discerning, which is the Word of God. Uh, If you don't get fed the Word of God, you're not going to have discernment. Here's what it says, Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So the, the Word of God is training us. And it's, yeah, that's Timothy. He says having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Yeah, somewhere in Timothy. <laughs> Couldn't find it in James. <laughs> Somebody moved it. I just got done reading Hebrews five twelve through fourteen, and so the groundwork, the foundation for discernment. You can't just trust your own feelings, your conscience. Yes, Scott. Yeah, well, not only just in charismatic, but about evangelical. That's what Neil Anderson teaches. He said Neil Anderson. He says discernment is like this little buzzer that goes off. Well, I'm telling you, people's buzzers are broke. (laughs) (laughs) If the buzzers were going off, a lot of these churches teaching false doctrine would be empty. You just can't count on a buzzer going off. You need to read the Bible to see what's right. It's like, yeah, you know, you walk in. Nope, this isn't good. No, you don't. We don't. We don't have subjective abilities to know good and evil. We need objective teaching to be trained. Now, I I grant that intuitively people might have a feeling that something isn't right, but until you can come to rational, objective reason about why it is or isn't, you're not sure. You're just, I mean, I've had a lot, I got tons of emails from people saying, you know, thank you for your article on the purpose-driven life. I knew something was wrong with it, but I couldn't figure out what it was. Okay, so what I handed them was some objective reason to confirm their their subjective impression, which turned out to be correct in that case. Yes, Cam. Very much so. Absolutely. Sincerity is not a, a discerning thing. It's a character. I mean, sincerity means that you really do believe what you believe. And you're telling people sincerely what you really believe. But if that's false, it can't do you any good. I'm sure the Dalai Lama is sincere. And I, I mean, most religious people are sincere. They wouldn't be as, as committed to their religion. I'm sure the suicide bombers sincerely think they're going to go to heaven. But I think they're in for a shock. Well, we got to get these verses read here. <laughs> okay, where were we at here? Psalm 51, 16. So even in the Old Testament, they realized they needed more than just the external sacrifice. They needed something in their heart. A, a, a broken, contrite heart, it's called there. Um, and it's amazing how many times we're going to read this. Isaiah 1, 11 through 15. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assemblies. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wow. That was Isaiah. Tough word. But basically, if they weren't right with God, then they're just going through the prescribed rituals, and it was of no value. Exactly. I was I was talking last night to a pastor to, about this issue. He was thinking I was being too hard on Rick Warren, and so we had a discussion about it. And I thought one of the things that that became clarified in our discussion is that there really is harm in giving people false assurance. And and the illustration I used was this: when I was in Bible college, we went door to door witnessing because I was working in this little church. This is in the early 70s. And so we knocked on the doors and we talked to people about the Lord. And in case after case, I talked to people who believed they were Christian because they were baptized when they were babies. And they'd say, I, I, and they'd say well, I, no, I know I'm a Christian. How do you know? Well, I was baptized as a baby. And it was so hard to convince them that they needed something else. Do you see what I mean? Because if you have false assurance based on something less than the gospel... And by the way, Alistair Big was talking about this too. It was, it was good. Uh, but that, it's like, it makes it harder. Because as soon as you've got that belief, okay, I'm alright with God now. Even if you're not, as soon as you have that, it's like you don't want to hear somebody saying that that's not right. And so it puts up a, a, a wall against the gospel. So I said to this pastor that isn't that what Rick Warren's doing? He's making this nice little easy thing where you learn your purpose and say this little prayer. Maybe some people are converted uh, if they truly believe the gospel. But how many people are gaining false assurance that every evangelist that preaches to them from now for the next 20 years, they're not going to listen? Well, I already did that. I don't need that. My friend, uh, my, my best friend in high school, who was, uh, um, he was, he was at least as good a sinner as I was. I think he was a bigger sinner than I was. At least he had more opportunities. <laughs> I don't know. He was a little better at finding opportunities to sin than I was. And uh, when, I, when I was converted and I went back and started preaching the gospel to him, he said, oh, um, I'm already a Christian. I go, what? He's the biggest womanizer in our town. Um, he was, he was, there was, he didn't do anything that was, appeared Christian. And nor did he ever talk about the Lord or read his Bible or have anything, any indication that he had any kind of faith. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, oh, uh, I went forward to an altar call when I was 12 and I believe once saved, always saved, so I'm fine. And he wasn't, because he'd been given false assurance that you're saved by making a decision to go forward once, um, he was inoculated against hearing the gospel. And he just didn't want to listen to me. He didn't want to hear one thing. I had to say that perhaps something was lacking. Because where's the grace of God that would... It says, doesn't it say, no uh, immoral person shall enter the kingdom of God? Can I read this passage from Jeremiah 23 on, on the false assurances? 23, 16. It goes, don't listen to the words of the prophets 
the guy speaking for God who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you'll have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. They're saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Yeah, peace with God when they don't have it. So, so it's, I, it, it's, we have to really get down to the reality of the gospel as preached by Christ and his apostles. And I'm suggesting to pastors that if we do know what the gospel is, if we do know how the New Testament proclaims the gospel, and if we do know there's a necessity of a blood atonement, and if we do know that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against sin, and if we do know that the justification is about the reconciliation of previous enemies, then how do we dare remove that from our preaching because people don't want to hear it? How can we say we're being faithful to God if we won't preach the gospel the way it was preached by Christ and his apostles? I don't think we have this option to change the message and to come up with other uh, things that sound more appealing. Because the gospel never has been appealing appealing to the carnal-minded, <laughs> sinful mind. But it is the power of God unto the salvation to all who believe. And God will use it. God has chosen to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who will believe. And I will not get off of this crusade the rest of my life. So, that, uh, that false assurance with Jewish people is something to overcome too. Really? Because just the fact that they're Jewish, uh, God's chosen people, they're, they've fallen. Yeah, that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't be that different than saying you're Catholic and you're believing in your baptism right. or something like that. Yeah, just, well, my heritage is going to save me. Yeah. Where I was from, they said, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm half Dutch, I'm half of something. All right, Hosea 6.6, 6, Norm, you've been patient there. There it is again. The knowledge of God is more important than the offering. You can make an offering without knowing God. You can be religious without knowing God. You can, you can get people to sign up and give money and even... Keep, people will give their lives for causes without knowing God. Yeah. Or the, the suicide bombers. They, they have religious motivations for giving up their lives. But do they know God on His terms? Micah 6, 6-8. through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord, the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Again, an Old Testament passage that's looking to the heart of the worshiper, not the external actions. Very much like Psalm 51. 
That's we used to sing that, didn't we? <laughs> I didn't know. Don't sing it now. <laughs> He's shown the old man what is good. What does the Lord require of thee? Walk humbly with your God. Okay, John one twenty nine. I think I know what it says, but <laughs> yes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist announced when he saw Jesus. Do you believe that the blood of Jesus is the only thing to wash away sins? Amen. Do you think people need to know that? Yes. Yes, indeed. You know, when we had that little meeting up there in Rock Creek, the first song, the first song that Pastor Cable had us sing, we had us sing some hymns. The very first one was, um, how does it go? I, I trembled at the law I spurned. At Calvary. Wow. That, that's, we've got to sing, we've got to get that, I, I know we've sung it, but we've got to get it more regular on our repertoire. Uh, because it had the gospel in it. And there's, there's a necessity of trembling at the law we spurn. And that, and that was the description. See, back whenever that hymn was written, they had a better understanding of the gospel and the law. And the free gift of salvation and the blood atonement, it's all in that hymn. It was a great hymn. Um, okay, let's go to Hebrews. We've got time perhaps to, for one more verse here. Hebrews 10.5 Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Now what we have here is... Psalm 40 is going to be quoted and alluded to here. Psalm 40, 6 through 8. Now, the citation is taken from the Septuagint. All right, not the Masoretic text. Now, that is often the, the habit of the New Testament writers is to quote the Septuagint as they're writing the Bible in Greek. Now, the Septuagint was already the Greek Bible. It was already there. And the interesting thing is that the Jewish people accepted it as inspired. Now, I'm not saying it is, but they thought it was. Did I ever tell you that story about the epistle of Erastus, or however you pronounce it? And before, this was before the time of Christ. In Alexandria, they had a story that 70 different Jewish scholars went into 70 different places and sat down to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. And then when they came out, they all had identical texts. So they believe, oh, this is a miracle. So because of, and I don't think that really happened, but there's no proof it really happened. But we know they did create a, a, a Greek Bible. But because of that, they tended to believe that this was an inspired Bible because God had given them this miracle how they got the Greek Septuagint. So that was a story that was popular in Judaism. Here's my point. The Masoretic text is the inspired one. But the point was, if you preach out of the Septuagint to Jewish people, they'll accept everything you said. And, it's, you know, it was, and, it, and just as much as we preach out of the English Bible, if it's, well, now we've got so many of them, I don't know if it's true. But if somebody, let's say you went, went to preach in a church that was King James only. It's all right, I'll preach out of the King James. If you accept that as the Bible, it's a good enough translation to be accurate to what God's Word is, I'll preach out of it. That is sort of, there would be something like that. It would be analogous to them preaching out of the Septuagint because the people were accepted and it was accurate enough. 
Now, in this case, though, some people wonder about this because he's making a big thing about this term body, soma in the Greek, but a body that was prepared for me. That wasn't in the Masoretic text, but it was in the Septuagint. And so then the scholars kind of work that one over about, well, what do we make of that? So I tell you these things. I wouldn't have to, but I, you know. <laughs> no extra charge. <laughs> it is in the Septuagint, but not the Masoretic. So I have some scholarly material working this over, but the point is they, they quoted it, and some people say, well, then is it inspired? Well, it's inspired because it's in the book of Hebrews. That's good enough for me. And everything in the New Testament is inspired. So now here, it's, it's actually talking about the body of Christ. That in other words, the pre-existent Son... The eternal Logos, as he's called in John 1, who was with God, who was God and was with God, comes into the world through the virgin birth and lives a sinless life. And this body of the Son becomes, is sacrificed once for all on the cross for sins. So let me just read this and then we'll, we'll get into more detail next week. Uh, I want to read on down a few verses where it, it deals with this citation. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me, from Psalm 40. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou hast taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we've been sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ once for all. So there's some pretty interesting um, logic and argumentation and biblical interpretation going on here uh, by the author of Hebrews. Somewhat sophisticated. Um, and so next week I'll unpack that a little bit for you the best we can. And I think the point's pretty simple. It's, the point is this. The Bible, the Old Testament prophesies that the Son of God would come and that His body would become the sacrifice for sins, not the ones that God didn't delight in in the Old Testament. 